Welcome to Paint Ed. PCA provides painting contractors with connections they need to grow their business. To find out more and to become a member, visit PCAPainted.org. Find more great content like this on PCA Overdrive. A subscription to the platform is included with membership. For all of you non-members out there, sign up for a free trial. PCA Overdrive is available on the App Store and Google Play. Welcome back to Contractor Evolution. It's Igor here and I'm joined by Benji at our studio. Hey guys, today is episode one of a multi-part series we're gonna call the Wealth Builder Series. And here's why we're making it. Breakthrough Academy exists for one very simple reason, and that is to transform honest, hardworking contractors into well-balanced leaders and thriving entrepreneurs. And we are super blessed to get to work with over 600 contracting businesses all over North America. And having been at this for eight years, we're actually starting to get to a point where many of our members are asking us a pretty interesting question. And it sounds something like this. Hey, my business has become a well-oiled machine and it's now making enough money that my family's needs are met. What should I do with the rest? So to answer this question, uh, over the next couple of months, we're going to be bringing on a number of world-class experts in exciting topics like real estate investments, equities, portfolio management, lending, and the broader world of economics. And the focus is really quite simple and is how does the entrepreneur behind an efficient and successful blue-collar business become truly wealthy long-term? What should we be doing with our hard-earned profits to maximize our returns, to limit our downside, and and most importantly, to design a life that we truly love. So we're going to be releasing a part of this series every other week for the next few months. And in between there, regular Contractor Evolution episodes are still going to be coming up. Totally. So today's episode one, we're super lucky to be joined by Darcy Crow of Crow Private Wealth at Canaccord Genuity. She's a senior portfolio manager. She's been in the industry for the last 18 years. And she comes at this actually with a background in investment banking and equity capital markets. So just set up the rest of this series, this first episode is going to be focused on a number of really important topics. We're going to talk about the investor's mindset that you need to have in order to be able to succeed in the long run as an investor. We're going to get into when and why you need to start investing outside of your own operating company. And Darcy is going to give us a really phenomenal overview of what a well-balanced portfolio looks like, how it's structured, and what the various different asset classes within it are. So let's dive in with Darcy Crow. You're watching Contractor Evolution, where we unpack the systems, tactics, and skills you need to take your fast-growing contracting business to the next level. You're here to learn what it takes to scale up, work less, and increase profitability. You've come to the right place. Stay tuned to learn what separates the new breed of contractor from the old school, and welcome to your ultimate guide on the business of contracting. Darcy, thanks for joining us. Welcome to Contractor Evolution. Thank you. Happy to be here. Um, I'd like to start with this question, Darcy. This and and this conversation is going to be part of 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 a multi part series. So I kind of started. I wanted to start with just a really broad question um, about the conversation we're going to have today, but but also the one that's going to extend into the following episodes. And so I want to frame it this way: like for the entrenched contractor. When I say entrenched, I mean, they are in their business. They live it, they breathe it. They're paying themselves what they need. But for the most part, they're reinvesting a ton of their dollars back into the entity, back into the company with the hopes of growing it to be something great one day. And and, and they will. Um, and so we're not knocking uh, the pursuit of growth, but I, I do actually want you to just comment on or, or make the case for why someone really needs to start thinking about putting those hard-earned dollars to work for themselves somewhere outside of their own business. Mm -hmm. So we can be excellent at building our business and build a fantastic business, but what's really important to be aware of is there is a lot of things that are outside of our control. And those are things, you know, you look geopolitical events that are happening, market events, the economy, um, you know, a recent example that, of course, is very fresh in people's mind is the pandemic. And unfortunately, these these events that are outside of our control um, can have a very meaningful impact on our business. And we need to be aware of that to properly plan for our future and the financial security for yourself and your family. 
So that really lends itself to saying, okay, if, if some things are outside of our control, I don't want to have 100% of my wealth tied to one company or one asset that could be very materially impacted by a market event. So that's the case where you talk about start diversifying and owning different companies and different sectors and industries and businesses on the side of your business to complement that. So that should there be something outside of your control that impacts your business, it is not as detrimental to your overall wealth. Do you think think that um, you brought up something interesting there. Do you think entrepreneurs overestimate how much control they have over their destiny and maybe underestimate the impacts of some of these events and 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 how they can affect their actual business? Like, is there is there a comment you can make on the psychology they have towards, you know, that's not going to happen to me. I, like, I'm, I'm at the helm of this ship. I've got it all under control. Do, do you think there's maybe some ego there that gets people into trouble sometimes? Yeah, I'm not sure if it's ego. I mean, you can, if you're a successful entrepreneur, you know, rightfully, you feel like you've built a fantastic business. It's growing, it's doing exceptionally well, and that it will be successful in the future. Um, I think it's taking time to step back from just looking at your business and the results of your business and the success of your business and just realizing that there is a whole world around you that you cannot control. Right. Um, and unfortunately, those events can be very meaningful to your business, you know, which is is not just the operation of your business. So I think that that's just a reality of our, our world, um, the global world that we operate in. And, um, you know, being naive to that can be very detrimental. I yeah. think you really need to have an awareness um, that there are these items outside of your control and there is things that you can do to, to mitigate that. Yeah, a pattern that I've really noticed with entrepreneurs, and I can speak for this from personal experience, like I've, I've felt this right from literally when I finished university and, and never had a real job in my life. Like I've always been an entrepreneur because I've I've felt the the desire, that like deep desire to be able to, to control my own destiny. And I think that most entrepreneurs end up as a business owner because at some level, like you have that need to control the future and, and into what we're talking about here. I think that sometimes you have an overly boosted view of how much control you really have. There's like massive, massive life-changing events that are happening all over the world, maybe as we speak, yeah. that we are kind of unaware of that could have a huge effect on the economics of our business five years from now. Totally. And having the intellect to realize that and therefore just make some of these moves that uh, that we're about to talk about in this episode and the, and the following ones I, th I think is, is is quite important. So let me ask you this, Jesse, you work with, with a lot of successful clients, uh, a number of whom are kind of in their, uh, call it like later stages in, the, in their career and their life, people who have done this diligently, like run a successful, strong business, um, made the right financial moves, the smart moves, um, had some of this broader understanding and humility to understand like they're not in control over everything. So they've, they've invested effectively, diversified effectively in their holdings, had good advisors. What does their life situation look like when they are 45, 50, 55 years old? So they get to a point in their life where really their money, the wealth that they've created over their career is now working for them. So whether they're choosing to continue to you know, work or not um, in their business or elsewhere, their money is now working for them and producing the return and the passive income stream that supports their lifestyle. Um, so that's where they get to. It gives them the freedom. It gives them the financial security. They have that security that them and their family are, are secure in the future. They're not going to be impacted by, you know, an event uh, happening. So they really get to this place of freedom and control over their finances and, and their wealth that they created over time is, is continuing to work for them and that provides for their lifestyle. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. So let me ask you this because this is something that I think is, is, is on people's minds often. I think I know a lot of people do have, there's an inherent human fear around like a lack of resources. I think it's like deeply bred in, in, in humans and in all animals for that matter. But um, something that people I think think about is what are the big mistakes that I really need to look out for that could severely compromise my future, my family's future and my success in, in, in creating wealth. What have you seen to be the top sort of wealth killing practices that people that people do where, where they shouldn't, what would you really advise people to be highly aware of? Yeah, so there's two two things that come to mind. One is, you know, the the saying that I think we've all heard is um, 
don't have all of your eggs in one basket. That that really can be a, a very, very detrimental, you know, wealth impairment. Um, again, that's talking about if all of your wealth is tied to one specific asset class industry company and something happens to impair that, that might be something that you can't recover from. So, so that, you know, diversification, not, you know, having all of your eggs in one basket can be a, a very big mistake that people make. And, and secondly, I would say is allowing, we, we have so much emotion tied to, to our money. So I would say an, another big mistake that we, we see happen is making very irrational, emotional decisions um, that can have very lasting impacts on, on our, our net wealth over time. And, you know, you see this happen, whether it's, you know, panic and, you know, selling and not recovering from that. Um, so, so I would really say having all your eggs in one basket or making very, very emotionally driven um, mistakes. In the investment world that you live in, what maybe just color that in a little bit. What are the most common like emotional mistakes that people make? You mentioned like sort of panic selling. Are there others? Yeah. So from an emotional standpoint, panic selling would be the biggest one. You know, we all know we're supposed to buy low and sell high. That's the idea. <laughs> That's the idea. Unfortunately, um, what happens from human psychology is the exact opposite of that. And markets, you know, if it happened to be in a downturn and something, there's a, a global event and markets tank, we panic and sell into that fear. That's just how emotionally we are driven as humans and it hasn't changed and it won't change. So that is just how we um, emotionally are, are driven. And on the flip side of that is also that fear of missing out. So we know we're supposed to buy low, but we see these trends sometimes happening and we you know, we see a rapid rise in the increase of a value and we want to get in on that, again, you're buying extremely high and that can be very, very risky as well. Yeah. I want to highlight one really important thing on this mistakes front. Um, especially driven business owners have a natural propensity to chase gains. Um, and in investing, that is, of course, something that is important. But this concept around around preventing catastrophic mistakes, especially when it's it's relate, rooted in your psychology or certain basic decisions that you did or didn't make around diversification are very important. So some really basic math to highlight. If you make decisions and sell when you shouldn't, are not diversified enough, have all your eggs in one basket, and take, for example, a 50% loss, mm. you now need to make a 100% gain to get back to where you are. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that's a little bit overlooked in a world that chases the upside is the importance of mitigating the downside. Totally. So just to reiterate, again, if you take a 50% loss on anything, it could be your real estate, it could be the value of your business, it could be the value of your portfolio, you now need a 100% gain to come back up. So just as important it is to chase upside, preventing massive downside is arguably even more important. Um, I want to ask if you have any practical advice or things you found useful for clients of yours or just people you talk to in this space about adding some distance between their emotions and their money. Like, is there anything that helps people just buffer the, the create a bit of a, an insulation barrier between them and these, these rash decisions that they make? How do you get people to just like calm down and, and stay cool when they really need to? So, one of the best things you can do is have a plan in place. And, and that's where we work with clients on these financial plans. And that's part of, um, you know, a lot of your your work that you should you should be doing on your, your overall net worth. Is, so if you have a, a plan in place and you know, this is where I'm trying to get to, I have a diversified portfolio, I've, I've you know, have an income stream, I've set aside the cash that I need for immediate terms, you know you are not in a position that you have to react to, an you know, a, a market event on, on the downside and say, you know, I need to sell to a afford this, that I'm, you know, if you've planned appropriately, you revert back to that plan and say, yes, I'm still on yeah. course. Of course, there could be a short-term pullback here, but I don't feel like I need to have an emotional response to that. So I think that planning aspect can be, you know, very, very helpful when you go through those emotional periods to stay on track. Um, one of the investment vehicles or, or asset classes that contractors, our listeners seem to really gravitate towards in particular is real estate. And we're going to, we're going to have some other experts come on in this series and, and get a whole series of different perspectives on this. When we think about the idea of eggs, all, all your eggs in one basket, 
Where does real estate fit into that? Is is, is that a different basket? Is it just same basket, but different spot for the egg? Like how, what's your commentary around real estate as a way of building wealth specifically, specifically for contractors? And the reason I ask is because almost all of them do it. When we look at our membership, it's sort of, it go, they, it's like peas and carrots. They just, I make money in, in a blue collar business. I do cool real estate stuff with that money. It's very, very consistent. So what are your thoughts on that? So for one, it makes a lot of sense, right? It's what we are naturally gravitate towards. What do we know? You know, you're going to have the inside information because it's the people you're working with, the experiences that you have and the knowledge that that you, you do uh, come across. So it makes sense from that perspective. However, when you take that back to the broader conversation we're having here, the work and the business of a contractor is going to be very closely linked to how real estate performs. They are, you know, within the, generally the same the same industry. They're going to perform very similarly to a market event or to where we're at in the market cycle or to what interest rates are doing. So really, while it might be slightly diversified in terms of it's not you know, having wealth directly in your business, it's going to be very highly correlated to your business, meaning it will respond very similarly to how your business will respond. So when we think about wanting to have not all of our eggs in one basket, that's ne not necessarily solving for that issue. We really want to look outside of real estate to further diversify our wealth. Why are they so correlated? That probably seems like an obvious question. I'm, I'm going to, maybe I'll try and answer this. And you tell me if I'm going in the right direction. Is it because as the price of real estate goes up, homeowners are more affluent, homeowners spend more on their house and contractors provide that service? Like, is that, is that the connection point between the two? That would be the connection. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's why they generally follow the same graph. Not perfectly, but, and we've seen this. I mean, yeah. you look at how contractors did through COVID when rates were down and stimulus was happening and nobody could travel. I mean, we literally just call it the COVID boom now, and it's directly correlated with with house with price the the price of real estate. So and people having access to to, to totally. cheap capital. Yeah. So it's just something to be mindful of. It's good. We'll talk about this again in other episodes, but it's good because you get it and you're you're well set up to force appreci appreciation on it. It's not so good. Don't kid yourself and say, "Oh, I'm super diversified because I own a plumbing company and four rental." rental properties. You're, totally. you're not really. Yeah. yeah. So on that note, this is a really important distinction that I think is worthwhile to unpack and talk about. So over the last 10, 15 minutes, we talked about the, the, the need to not have all of your eggs in one basket, meaning all of your capital and your assets are the value of your business. We said diversify outside of them. But now what we're talking about is even when you do diversify and you do invest outside of your own business, don't just be in real estate. So again, might be a bit of a simple question, diversification 101, but what is, um, can you tell us a bit about like the philosophy behind the approach to diversifying within the context of an investment portfolio outside of one's own business? Yeah, so diversification is really um, an investment strategy to mitigate risk. That that's truly, and it's sort of the, known as the number one rule of, of investing. It, it mitigates your risk, and as you talked about, it pr protects you to that downside. Um, there's something that we refer to as concentration risk, and that would be sort of the opposite. When we have all of our wealth or a good portion of our wealth all within assets that are going to move in the same direction based mm -hmm. on a market event, and that's where you are at risk of one market event having a significant impact on your wealth that you can't recover from. So we want to get away from that concentration risk over time as, as we can. So there's there's really five key ways when you look at diversifying that portfolio outside of, of your business. So what we look at is diversification within asset classes. We look at industries. There's you know various industries that you can be in. There's geography. Um, there's the style of company and then the size of the companies. So if we want to talk about each of those briefly, mm -hmm. so asset class, of course, you know the very common that um, example that people will look to is stocks and bonds. And overall, stocks and bonds are thought to have been negatively correlated. So if your stocks are going down, your bonds you know should be positive or holding up or at least significantly less yeah. down. So that's where you see you know, that example of different asset classes behaving differently in, in a market event. Um, the next the next area is industry. When we talk about, you know, real estate being being one of those, of course, but there's, you know, 11, you know, industries broadly defined within markets. So that's everything from technology, you know, people will know Apple, Microsoft, financials, Visa, JP Morgan, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of significant consumer discretionary, consumer staples, you then have, you know, energy and materials. So there's very various different industries, and they are going to all respond to different market events and different um, economies very, very differently. So that's a, a great way to achieve right. good diversification within your portfolio. 
Um, when we look at size, of course, we talk about market capitalization. That's sort of the size of, of the business. And again, small cap and large cap will behave very differently. When you have the smaller businesses, can be a little bit more volatile, but you know, typically have mm -hmm. you know higher return potential uh, versus you know larger cap, more mature companies. So that's another way you can have that diversification. Geography is another. So we sort of think of it in three buckets. You have the U.S., you have developed markets, excluding the U.S., and then emerging markets. So those are three you know, additional ways. So you want to have access and exposure to different markets around the world and not just be centered in, in you know, maybe your home country. And, and lastly, style. So we usually break that down between growth and value. So you're going to have your growthy businesses that, you know, maybe aren't paying dividends. They maybe are more volatile, really, really great growth within them. And then your value businesses, which are more established, long-term businesses, you know, likely paying dividends out to their shareholders, aren't ex um, experiencing the same level of growth, but they're stable, secure, mm -hmm. you know, long-term businesses. So cool. those are really ways that you can achieve really great diversification in your portfolio to know that you have some of that downside protection in market yeah. events. That's a really good explanation. Thanks for breaking down those five. And so, you know, what we're talking about here is I, I find just so interesting because, you know, you can come to the same mistake, even if you do invest outside of your own business, but you do then still concentrate it in stuff that, totally. that is so familiar to you, which I think a lot of people do, right? Like if we are in Canada, we're going to invest. If I do buy stocks, I'm going to maybe buy some Canadian real estate investment trusts. And if I'm going to get into some real estate asset class, some other asset classes, it's going to be owning apartment buildings in my same hometown, stuff like this, right? So um, it, it, it's cool. I just find it fascinating that we have these instruments and these tools in this modern day and age available available at our disposal just through the right relationships or through <laughs> through the internet to be able to own such diversified companies so easily. So if I'm a contractor, I can in Canada, I can own pharmaceutical companies in the US very, very easily, for instance, and diversify myself in 25 different ways to through different sectors, different company sizes, different geographies. It's just, it's a really cool and exciting thing and tool that we have available at our disposal. Yeah. So, and, and being aware of those biases that we have, right? When you say, if you're in Canada or the US, naturally your portfolio will be way over tilted to where you are. Again, if you're within one industry, naturally your portfolio. So it's being aware of those biases and the tilts that you just naturally will put in place and try to mitigate that. And, and as you said, the technology and the product innovation that we've seen over recent years with um, you know, the ability and securities that you can buy to achieve diversification and the ease of access to you know, have exposure to various countries and industries all in you know, basketed securities has really come a long way. And you can do it very inexpensively now as well. So um, yeah. there's there's great opportunities there. Yeah, 100%. And I'll just say like from a personal perspective, like I, I do feel a good feeling when as much as like I love the organization that I run and, and, and my company, when I'm, I buy regularly, let's just say over the last month or two, like Canadian banks, like the majority of our businesses in the US. So Canadian banks, Canadian oil and gas companies, like it's, I, I feel good. And it's exactly where we're hitting the nail on the head from a diversification perspective. Like I know that I'm, I'm putting less eggs all in that same basket. So this is really cool. All right. I want to ask you a really important question here, Darcy. Um, we're talking about different asset class mixes. Like you talked about like certain fixed income stocks, uh, different kind of alternatives. Let's break down for people and, and we can keep this pretty elementary here. Like what are the different kind of asset classes that that are available to people. When you look at a really well set up portfolio, what are the different things that it could include inside mm -hmm. of it? So let's go through a bit of a run through on those and, and we'll talk briefly um, about what each one of those are. Okay, great. So I think high level, you want to think about it as, as four buckets for these asset classes. So the, the first one that you want to think about is your cash or cash equivalents. And okay. That really is, you know, your low risk, lowest risk bucket. Um, it's generally a lower return because, of course, often these cash um, allocations or cash equivalents are going to be guaranteed, whether that be, you know, guaranteed by, you know, backed by government or uh, a bank that you're, you're holding your deposits with. Um, so that's really your, your lowest risk cash. And you want to make sure we typically say having at least one year of expenses within that cash, that cash bucket. You don't want to be in a situation 
situation where you don't have access to the liquidity that you need and forced to sell something at an inopportune time. So um, that, that cash is an important um, allocation there. You want to make sure that you have some emergency reserve there that you have access to at, at all times. And again, you know, interest rates will move. So what you're getting earning on that cash will, will change in different market environments. So that will also impact perhaps how much you want to have in cash and equivalents. Uh, but those are some of the, you think of deposits that you have at the bank, you think of treasuries, high interest securities, high interest savings accounts. Um, you know, in Canada, you have GICs, guaranteed investment certificates in the USCDs. Um, so those are some of the different options of cash and a cash equivalents to make sure that you have low risk, ease of access liquidity to you. So this is stuff that, that that's fully liquid, like you could grab access to at any time. At any time or in the short term. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. So um, that, that's one. That's the one first bucket. The second would be your fixed income securities. So that's, you know, traditionally what we think about is bonds. So you are lending your money out to somebody and they're going to pay you interest for having access to that capital. So again, you can have diversification within that fixed income bucket, but overall you're, you're looking at, this would be, you know, a higher return than cash because perhaps you're lending to a corporation or a government and, and perhaps a longer term. So you're earning perhaps more interest than just sitting in cash. However, they're typically thought to be less volatile than some other in investments. So, um, you know, again, diversification by industry, by corporation, you have credit risk there as well. So if I'm loaning you money, you're going to pay me interest. You know, what a government's going to pay me in interest is likely going to be less than, you know, a startup company, the mm -hmm. amount of interest that they would have to pay me. So there's credit risk to think about there, but that's sort of another bucket that uh, fixed income securities. Interesting. Okay, cool. Okay. Uh, from there. So then we have stocks or equities. Um, so it, those would, if you if you buy a stock or an equity, you're essentially owning shares in a business. You own a part of that business. So if the the value of that business goes up or down, you you know are along for that ride. Your your, your ownership of that company, uh, the value of your ownership can go up and down. And you're also entitled to a portion if they pay dividends or distributions. Your portion of those dividends and distributions. Um, so again, the time horizon on this, we always want to make sure if you're investing in equities, you know, typically these trade publicly on exchanges. So they are liquid. You can buy and sell them, you know, at any day the market's open. However, you never want to get put in that situation where you're forced to sell. So we typically say you want to have a one-year time horizon when you're investing in equities. Um, and again, all those ways we talked about how you can properly diversify those equities again um, is important to, to come into play there. Mm -hmm. And then the last bucket that I would talk about is alternatives. And that's a very broad bucket. Um, but really, when we talk about alternatives, it's it's any asset that falls outside of those three traditional asset classes we just talked about of cash, fixed income, and stocks. So that's going to be, you can have private assets. It would be maybe private real estate, private debt, private equity. Your, your business would be considered an alternative asset from that perspective. They behave differently than your traditional, you know, list publicly listed stocks and, and fixed income securities. Um, it would also include things like hedge funds. It would include things like commodities, energy, gold, um, collectibles, art. So any of those asset classes that really have a different return stream than your more traditional publicly listed asset classes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. And so a simplified way to maybe look at this, this whole like stocks, bonds mixes with bonds, you basically kind of own debt with equities, you you own a part of that company. You own a part of the equity in the business. Part of the equity in the yeah. business. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, that's good. Benji, does it make sense? Is there anything you want to clarify in that group? Um, you make the distinction broadly between like value stocks and growth stocks. And I thought we went by it quite quickly. Do you want to just, just maybe flush that out a little bit? We're going to go deeper on it in, in, in later episodes, but how are those two things looked at differently? So a growth stock is traditionally an earlier stage business. They're experiencing very high levels of growth within their business. They're investing all of their cash and cash flow and profits back into the company and therefore likely not paying out dividends. So it's to, riskier to but higher investors. ceiling. Risk, I would say riskier, more volatile, but therefore greater return potential you know, long term. Then you have your value businesses, which are much longer, you know, more established businesses, typically larger businesses. Um, however, they, you know, their, their growth profile has moderated. Uh, they're not seeing the same very, very high levels of growth. So they're typically then returning cash flows to their investors more through boring, the form of dividends. More stable. 
what would be some like really recognizable names or businesses that might fit into those two categories loosely? Like are there recognizable growth stocks that people would know and recognizable value stocks that people would know? Yeah, and I'll pick the the larger, you know, sure. growth stocks that are that are more mature growth stocks but are still experiencing that very very significant level of growth. So that's where you would see a lot of the the businesses like Apple and Amazon and Netflix of of the world that still see that really really significant growth within their business and they invest a lot of that cash back into their businesses to continue that that growth. Um, when you look at more value-based businesses that have been along for you know a, a long period of time, you're looking at more of the Home Depots and, and Walmarts of the of the world that are more stable businesses, don't see that same type of growth um, and, and are having still very, very positive cash flow, but they return a lot of that cash flow to their shareholders. Perfect. Yeah, something I just want to like really simplify here. Um, you know, all listeners basically understand what it's like to run a business. And at the end of the year, when you have profit, you could do literally just one of two things with it. You could either keep it in the company and and use it to to grow, like you're investing into marketing, you're you're buying, uh, you know, more commercial space, you're buying machines, you're hiring more employees, and you're basically just used that capital to grow, or you could push it out to you, the shareholder, you kind of like have two options. And that and that's really what we're talking about here. When you talk about owning a stock, it, it might sound like this complex black box of the stock market, but you literally just own a piece of a company. And, and you've got companies that are growing really quickly, and they're going to take the money that's made at the end of the year and, or the quarter of the month and just keep it in the company and use it to fuel growth, or they're going to push it out to their shareholders in the form of dividends. And then you as a, as a shareholder would get that dividend. That's kind of, is that, am I correct in saying yeah, that's kind of what's going on? That's exactly right. And you as a shareholder, if they're experiencing 20, 30, 40% growth, you want them to hold on to that money and reinvest totally. it because you're seeing those fantastic returns. Whereas in a more moderate growth business, you're very happy to see maybe that 5% dividend paid out to you every year because that's, you know, great cash flow for you to yeah. have. And they may not be, you know, they might be growing at 5%, but you'd like to see that cash flow. So that's the difference. Yeah, no, no different than if, you, if you're growing your business really quickly, rather than you taking a whole bunch of money out of it, that money could actually do pretty productive stuff by you keeping it in your business and you hiring that office manager and you hiring that general manager, like, you know, you're going to get a return by doing that. So that's, um, that makes a lot of sense. So so tell me this, Darcy, um, let's talk about like how, like what these portfolios look like or what they should look like when done properly. Now, Absolutely. Everybody's case is different. Their lifestyle, their family structure, how old they are. Like we're, we're, we're not talking in concrete terms. We're going to talk in a very broad terms here, but I want to talk about like two different types of individuals. I want to talk about the younger, hard driving, fast growing entrepreneur who's maybe five, seven, 10 years into growing their contracting But business. has a lot of runway left. A lot of runway. Yeah. They're relatively young, huge runway left. The company keeps growing what should their portfolio structure, very broadly speaking, look like, as opposed to somebody who's been running their business for 25 years, uh, is quite stable in their kind of like life structure and style, and maybe looking at a retirement, not not tomorrow, but five years out, seven years out. What? Um, let's kind of break down portfolio structures between those two types of entrepreneurs. Yeah. So the main thing to hit on here is your, your risk tolerance or the amount of risk that you can take on at your various life points, it, you know, it changes as, as you age. And if you're a younger investor, you can take on more risk because if you do have significant downturn, you have a lot of runway, as you right, say, to make yeah. that back up. If you're just entering into retirement years, you can't afford to have a big downturn in your wealth because you don't have the same earning potential. You don't have the same time on your side to make up that that downturn. So that's why we we typically like to decrease risk over time. So if you're looking at sort of a, a younger portfolio that can be more aggressive in nature, more more growth tilted in nature, typically we'll see you know less reliance on cash and fixed income securities, more more heavily rated towards those equities that have you know come with higher risk, but at the same time have higher long term long term returns associated with that. So you might have a 100% portfolio of, of equities and you may not need to incorporate any fixed income with, within there. You know, at, at the same time, you can have a greater tilt towards growth stocks that again are more volatile, but it can have a longer term return potential because you're not relying on the income of, of those stocks. So you can have all growth mm -hmm. stocks that perhaps don't pay that income out to their shareholders because you're working, you have a strong income uh, and you have a lot of time on your side. 
So let's contrast that to someone in their retirement years or just entering their retirement years. You certainly want to bring down the risk portfolio, the risk of your portfolio at that time. So that might be incorporating, you know, higher cash levels, higher fixed income levels, um, you know, really enhancing that diversification to protect to the downside to ensure you don't have a, a significant mm -hmm. downturn in your portfolio. And it might be incorporating more of those value, really, really large cap stocks into your portfolio that are paying solid return streams and, and solid income streams to you that you can live off those return streams if perhaps you're in retirement and no longer making an, an active employment income on your own. So that's typically, again, very broad strokes because your individual situation will be, um, you know, very much a factor in, in how you position yourself. But um, those tends to be generally um, what we see in um, sort of younger investors versus approaching retirement. And I guess it's your job as as the advisor, the planner with them to over the years and decades kind of, you know, you, you meet with them, you get to know how things are changing, how their thoughts are evolving, their their plan for retirement is maybe becoming more defined. And I guess it's your job to slowly move them from that higher risk set of assets, that bundle to a lower risk one that pays out more over time. Like that's, that's what a really good advisor helps a client do, correct? Absolutely. You need to, over time, as you go through those different phases in life, you need to see those portfolio shifts to adapt to where they're at in, in their lifestyle, the income that they need, the risk that they can afford to take on, what's happening in their family circumstances, what their financial resources and So that's our job as a financial advisor to work with clients to ensure that that investment portfolio is more suitable for and them. Th that's done on a pretty gradual basis case by case, individual to individual, family to family. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so j just to be clear, so for someone who's, who's younger and in a, in a high income earning growth period of their, of their career, you wouldn't be alarmed if they're fully in equities, they own some real estate, they, and, and they own just like good quality, high growth companies. And like, because you talked about these different asset class of alternatives and cash equivalents, if someone is younger, would you be alarmed if all they own is real estate and equities or is that call it okay. I wouldn't say alarmed. I still like to see for sure diversification among equities, um, different industries, sizes, mm -hmm. asset classes, geographies. Um, you know, typically I, I, you want to see some cash to make sure that, you know, there, there is good liquidity within the portfolio there that uh, particularly if a lot of your net wealth is in a private business, you know, that's not going to be maybe a source of liquidity yep. for you. So you want to make sure that you have the cash on hand. But outside of that, you know, particularly we just went through a very, very low interest rate period, right? So people were not very happy earning 1% on, you yeah. know, fixed income securities. Yeah. So in, in those situations, yeah, absolutely. I, again, another thing is your personality, though. If you are going to be in 100% equities and there's a big market downturn and your natural reaction is going to be to sell, then that's not the right thing for you. But overall, as long as you're very, very well diversified, if you're in a high growth, you're young, you have time to, to make up, um, then having, you know, a 100% equity portfolio would not be completely, you know, uh, out of the norm. Yeah. And let me ask you just one very specific question, because this is the case for a lot of homeowners across North America. Like if I've have had substantial lift in the, in the equity, like the value of my home and I have a relatively low mortgage now, would you consider that a cash equivalent or not? Like if I've got, if I could take a million dollars out of my house right now on a home equity line of credit, or I could mortgage it, uh, say I don't have a mortgage. Would you call that like a cash equivalent or would you rather see like actual cash? I wouldn't call that a cash equivalent because your home is very illiquid uh, asset. And while you can um, access, if you don't have a mortgage or very low and you're confident that the bank would give you that, you still, you know, we have no control over where interest rates are going. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, in the government's hand, the hands of the economy. Um, so you don't want to be relying on that until it's actually cash in your hand yeah. because there's things that come up and you want to know that that liquidity is available if you need yeah. it. Cool. Awesome. Very interesting. So what I'm reading for the, for this is kind of, and, and Benji, I think you put this wall between like that younger, when we kind of planned out this conversation, like the younger growing business owner and the that, that older entrepreneur is kind of more stable. It, the way I'm seeing this is you've got kind of a growth runway where you get yeah. a lot more aggressive, you take on more risk, you take on more volatility, but you grow, grow, grow for a decade, two decades, three decades, and then you've built that mountain. And at that point, then you kind of, you level it out and coast and take a lot less risk and get set up to, 
be able to uh, you get set up to be able to then, then start to draw returns from it. Yeah, right? then it's protecting that wealth yeah. that that you've built and and delivering that that passive income stream from that wealth. But you got to build it first. But you got to build so it first. So keep listening <laughs> to this podcast and join BTA. Um, when do you think? Um, and I, you know, I'm sure it's probably easy to answer this question by saying like as early as possible. But when do you think for the type of listener that we have, an entrepreneur, they've got a business, they probably got a home. Uh, super ambitious. Like when in their, what, at what size and stage must planning for retirement become something that's quite intentional? So yeah, the, the, the easy answer there is, is the earlier, the better, because you have that long, that the time is on your side when it comes to investing. And the longer that you're invested, the greater exponential impact that, that you do see. But of course, let's be realistic. You know, people have priorities in place in terms of, is it, is it home ownership? Is it, um, you know, wanting to put a lot of that, that money into, into your business? So it is going to be, um, you know, very unique and personal, that decision, Having said that, you know, the, you want to take advantage of the various, um, you know, the various tax efficient strategies that are available to us. So if there's ways that you can take advantage of um, tax protected accounts, you know, those are great ways to start building wealth early. If you're disciplined about taking a portion of your, you know, your income and, and investing in that, it doesn't need to be a lot. But if you, the earlier that you can start, that you have that ability to take some money from the business yeah. to be investing is, is the best time to really be doing it. I mean, I, I'm not a pro in this, but intuitively I think about as soon as you start to have some medium-sized chunks there at the end of the year where it's like, hey, my mortgage is paid for, my car is paid for, we went on a trip, like my life here is looked after, but there's still 30 grand here, 50K or or half a million here, depending on the size of your business, I think it's really prudent to start to do some, at the very least some habit building around this. It's, di it's discipline, the it, discipline of it and steady, because otherwise naturally you could just spend more, go on more trips and spend more. But the discipline of it is saying, okay, I have X amount left over. I'm going to take, you know, X percent of that and, and put it away for, for growth of the long term. Are you a big proponent of automated like, like account transfers, like just sort of set it and forget it type stuff where you, it pulls 1500 a month and takes it from this account where you can spend out of it to this account where there's not even a card attached to it. Like are mechanisms like that useful? It's a great way to yeah. incorporate discipline. It, uh, it it takes the reliance out of you to remember to do that mm -hmm. and to not be spending it. So it's it's really a fantastic way to build in that discipline uh, over time. So a big it's called pay yourself first, right? And, yeah. and it makes sure that you that you put a priority on on that. I, and I one of the things that that you know people have been really really successful long term talk about is this idea of lifestyle creep and i it's it's worth it's worth pointing out it is so incredibly easy for your tastes to just grow with your income and leave very little left it, you you just go from a honda civic to a toyota to a lexus to a porsche you go from a thing like it's it's you need nicer dinners you need nicer clothes and i and i think that you obviously want to reward yourself. You work hard, but there is absolute value in being really cognizant of how that just naturally seems to float up. Yeah. And I, that's why I love these auto transfers. If you can just get it away from you so you actually can't even touch it, it's it's it requires no discipline. It, it's, it's not that hard because it's not there for you to spend in the first place. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah, We've got Brian Scudamore in studio later this week. He, I don't know what revenue 1-800-GOT-JUNK does, but it does a lot. A he, lot. He rolled up, uh, we rolled up in our two Ford F-150s to the cafe. That's not lifestyle creep. <laughs> so um, here, here is a uh, another question I have. When you, um, there is a very popular movement these days, and I think that these platforms do an unbelievable job marketing themselves. Questrade is one of them. Uh, what are the others? There's all sorts. Wealth Simple. There's all sorts of apps, um, and there, there's a bit of an idea around sort of DIY investing. Uh, can you make the case for it against it? You know, what are the inherent risks uh, of sort of following something you saw on Reddit or a, a clip you saw on CNN and going and making sort of unilateral investment decisions based on all that stuff? Yeah. So to, to start with, yes, the technology and access has come a long way that it is easy. It's simply logging onto a website and you set up an account, it's inexpensive. You know, a lot of these platforms trade for free or close to free. So access and costs are certainly great advantages, but there are, you know, risks that come along with that to be aware of. 
So first of all is, you know, the access that we have to information right now is just flowing everywhere and we're inundated every day. Um, so this trend investing that we've seen really emerge over recent years. What is that? Do you want to just define it for us? So again, when you're talking about, you know, social media and Reddit and these online platforms that are sort of identifying themes that are out there and that are expected in the future and sort of a lot of individual investors get behind these trades and, you know, it causes a run up in, in, in certain areas of the market. So the, the, the caution there is by the time you're getting this information and it's gone through social media, it is very widely available. And oftentimes you've often seen a very, very significant large run up in the price of those securities. And the risk when you purchase a security after it's seen a 20 or 50 or 100 or 200% run up is there is a long way down from there. So it becomes market timing. Yes, could you catch the last bit of that trend and do very, very well? Of course, but you also have a very significant downside risk there. So we really, really caution, you know, investors that are doing it on their own to be careful of that trend investing because you can be investing and paying extremely unreasonable valuations for some of those assets. Um, that that inherently is very risky. You're kind of saying that you, by the time you're hearing it, you're late already. You're late already. Um, that's that's kind of humbling. So yeah. guys, what 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 is like abundantly clear to me from not just listening to Darcy, but but being kind of in, in this world for, for quite a number of years now is this to actually understand what is going on inside of a company that you're buying is incredibly complex, right? Like I can only imagine like the, 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 the level of analysis and the types of analysts that you have around you to actually understand like what is the true value of, of a company that you're buying or a bond or any one of these alternatives. It's, uh, it is, I would say, completely unreasonable for you as a very busy business owner running a contracting company with a myriad of complexities and you're dealing with your sales team and your production teams and customers and your office teams and all this kind of stuff that you would be a true analyst and understand what is going on and be able to dig even three inches under the surface, you know, as compared to just getting the stream of like media headlines coming in. So I think that some level of humility is important here to understand. Like it's, it seems it's simpler easy. than it is. Yeah. Well, th there's a famous quote by Warren Buffett. W what does he say? Like in, in it's investing simple, but not is easy. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so to, to be able to log into one of these platforms, like to go on quest trade and, and put, you know, AAPL or whatever the ticker is and buy Apple is, is like you could do, we could do that right now in 15 seconds while we're recording if we wanted to, but it doesn't mean that I actually know what is going on at Apple and where that company is headed. So do not be fooled by how quick and, and, and easy this seems. It's, it's actually extremely complex, not to even mention the like life planning and long-term guidance element to it. So I think that there's quite a downside of, 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 of this, this media stream and how quick it has become to transact, uh, because yeah. it, it's made it all the more deceiving. You're actually doing something very complex. You just happen to be doing it in 15 seconds. It doesn't mean that you know what you're doing. And the, I think it's worth mentioning the way that social media works right now is they don't make cool YouTube videos or Instagram posts about the losers. They, they <laughs> yeah. just quietly like, that's not what's making the headlines. So it's a, it's actually a slightly tilted view on reality when you see meme stocks do this and and you know crypto do this and and I'm not I'm not necessarily knocking those like I wouldn't say never do that I'm just I'm just making a comment on how reality is shaped by this modern thoughtosphere that we live in it's you really are zoomed in on the upside and you have very little concept of the downside. <laughs> yeah, I, look, you, you see it in 2021. You see it in markets where everything is rising and, and you know, you're doing it yourself and everything. You think, I'm, I'm great at this. This is really yeah. easy. And then you have a very, very wide awakening when all of a sudden that that party stops and, and things, you, you know, go the other direction. And, you know, that's where we very often get the phone calls of saying, like, please take this off my hands. I don't have the time or ability, you know, to, to do this on my own. On my own. So I think it's just being aware of those risks and that there is going to be times where it does feel easy when, mm. you know, markets and asset classes and risk assets are all are all floating upwards. Um, but that the market cycles are, are here to stay. There will be ups and downs of the markets. And so you have to be aware of that and the risks that come with it and make that decision of what's the best way for you to, to manage that. Yeah, 100%. And if, if you're an avid listener of Contract Revolution, I think what, one thing that, that you must be 
pretty clear on by now is that we are really big fans of surrounding yourself with experts and understanding like what your genius zone is. You know, Benji really, for example, un- while understands our content marketing strategies at Breakthrough Academy and drives contract revolution, it doesn't mean, Benji, that you change the spark plugs on your car or you're doing your own root canal. Right. Um, so why would you be your own investment analyst? Right. It's, it's the same kind of thing. Like we have a lot of really amazing experts, whether it's in digital marketing, on tax advisory, whatever on the show. And that's, I think, what we're saying is like understand what your genius zone is. Do it really, really well and have other people do all of the other stuff that they're good at and can free up your time so that you could drive your genius zone. This whole conversation, I think, is just another one of those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Darcy, just in closing, we've, we've had a really great conversation about this. Um, let me just ask you kind of like one fun question to close. Like if you had a closing piece of advice or for guidance or, or of guidance, think, you know, if you ran a, a specific investment knowledge uh, and financial planning course for successful entrepreneurs before you kind of let them out for the remainder now of their investment journey, what would be kind of on that last day of class? What would you say to them? What parting piece of wisdom would you leave them with? So this is not, you know, overly exciting, but it really comes down to the fundamentals of of investing. And that is just of compounding returns. And Mm. when you look at, so compounding returns mean if you invest $1,000 today, not only is that $1,000 going to return you in the future, but then the return on that return is, is invested in returning for you. So what that means is, you know, Time is your power there. The earlier that you can start, the better. But if you invest today and let that money grow for you over time, it really, the power of compounding returns, it just means that it can multiply your your wealth exponentially over, over time. So um, it's not exciting. It's, uh, it's discipline and it's allowing time to work in your favor and uh, do all the things that we talked about today in terms of diversification and limiting that downside for you. But that, that uh, power of compounding returns to grow your wealth exponentially over time is really powerful. Um, so it's important start early and be disciplined. Amazing. That That is a really, really powerful piece of advice. Um, it, it, it's, it's a really crucial concept to understand. Like it's not, uh, it's, it's not sexy. It's like, you just kind of map it out in a spreadsheet, so to speak. It's math, it's pure math, but it is powerful. It's, it's, if I invest a hundred thousand dollars today and have a 10% return next year, I'm not investing a hundred thousand, I'm investing 110 and put that into a spreadsheet and calculate it out over 30 years. And you'll see what I mean. Um, it is a very powerful concept. So thanks for, thanks for mentioning that. That is really cool. So just think, closing, um, Darcy, if people want to chat more about life planning, financial planning, different types of investment instruments, um, tell us where they can find you. So I work at uh, Can Accord Genuity Wealth Management. My firm uh, within that is Crow Private Wealth, and I'm just at crowprivatewealth.com. Again, my name's Darcy Crow, and I lead the group there. And again, it's investment management. It's that bigger picture, financial planning, tax efficiency, making sure that you and your family are secure for the long term. Amazing. Good stuff. And we will link your website and your contact information in the show notes right here. So if you're watching on video, click right below the video. And if you're cruising in the truck and uh, uh, and and you're listening on the podcast, just click right below in the podcast notes and we'll link that, that in there. So Darcy, thank you so much for joining us on Contract Revolution. It's been an awesome chat. Thanks for having me. It was fantastic. Thanks for coming. Thanks so much for watching this episode of Contractor Evolution. If you've already subscribed to our channel, consider sharing this episode with another contractor who you think needs to hear it. Paynet podcasts are produced by the Painted Contractors Association and are made possible by members and industry partners. To find out more about upcoming education opportunities or for more information about joining PCA, visit PCAPainted.org. 